0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app
1: today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500 Hey,
0: everybody, we got a great one today, you know, for a change. Steve Schmidt, former Republican political operative, uh, ran the John McCain campaign. He kind of had a falling out uh, with my late former colleague, Steve, of course, uh, became very critical, to say the least, of uh, McCain's running mate, Sarah Palin, which he had, Steve had some responsibility for, for her being chosen. But anyway, for whatever reason, he had real problems with her. And I think we know what they are. And But McCain would never refuse to say anything negative uh, uh, about her. And so that was uh, at least part of the a source of their split. Palin, of course, is just um, part of the reason Steve became a Democrat. She was a Tea Party leader, one of the uh, of a line of Republican characters like Pat Buchanan, uh, like Steve Bannon, uh, your your Donald Trump, uh, your Tucker Carlson, who have uh, brought us to this MAGA world that is truly frightening. And that poses an existential threat to our democracy. And that's what Steve and I uh, talked about. Um, Speaking of Tucker, uh, Steve gets into the great replacement theory, which has brought us these tragic mass murders, including the one in Buffalo this week. The great replacement theory is uh, over its a hundred plus year old racist theory. The current iteration here in America and on Fox news is that Democrats and, uh, George Soros, uh, are bringing in as many minority member immigrants as possible who will obediently, uh, vote democratic and replace the white majority voters here in our country. And, uh, it be enslaved to the Democratic Party. Now, the New York Times did an analysis of Tucker's uh, Fox News broadcast over the last few years and found that he had talked about the Great Replacement Theory on more than 400 of his shows. Now, the shooter in Buffalo put out a uh, 180-page manifesto and the great replacement theory was all over it but tucker claims no relationship between his 400 shows and the shooter's manifesto because tucker says it was very poorly written and was clearly the work of a man with mental illness so um that's a great excuse. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say some really irresponsible stuff, and uh, and it can't be blamed if someone with mental illness picks it up. Uh, but part of what the, the shooter himself shared was that uh, he didn't become a racist until he understood the Great Replacement Theory. Now, you'll recall that the rioters in Charlottesville chanted, Jews will,
1: Jews will not replace us! Jews will not replace us! Jews will
0: not replace us! And of course, according to Donald Trump, there were some good people on both sides. Well, there was one good person on the side of the racist Nazis, and that was the nephew of one of them, one of the marchers, who was sent there by his mother to make sure his uncle didn't kill anybody. Now, again, Tucker has done over 400 segments on replacement theory, but he says he bears no responsibility for the 10 people killed in Buffalo. So so what's going on here? Well, Tucker is a liar. And he said that not not so long ago on a podcast. I lie, he said. I lie when I'm backed into a corner. I think that was a little inaccurate. He doesn't need to be backed into a corner. Uh, I am loath to refer to any of the current ilk of these right-wing uh, demagogues as Nazis. I, w- I won't do it. It's not fair. The Nazis killed millions of people just because of their race and religion. But you'll hear Steve Schmidt draw the parallels, and um, I didn't it didn't feel right for me to interrupt him uh, or object. I will make one note my uh, my friend Bradley Whitford, the actor, is uh, in the cast of the Handmaid's Tale, that TV series, which I guess is in the fourth, fifth season. and we were talking the other day, and he told me that uh, Margaret Atwood. The, the author of The Handmaid's Tale, was on the Ezra Klein podcast, and she told him, you have to remember that being a Nazi was fun. And that has kind of stuck with me. Sometimes I feel like some of these people that go out there and lie all the time must have some, you know, must, have something in their soul where it nags at them and, nah. Anyway, we got a great one today, you know, for a change, Steve Schmidt. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as 3 weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup that means that means I would also like the soup and that way I get soup with dinner here's a special limited time deal for our listeners right now get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription but only for our listeners at babble.com slash franken get up to 60% off at babble.com slash franken spelled b-a-b-b-e-l dot com slash franken
2: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at MintMobile.com.
0: Hey, Steve. Al, it's good to be with you. Uh, It's been a while, uh, but since then, everything seems to be going great. And, uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) man, oh, man. Uh, Of course, as we tape this, uh, it's about a day or so after the shooting in Buffalo, and I think we had a number of mass shootings. And that was about uh, some guy who bought this replacement theory. And I wanted to ask you about that, because that seems to be something that the Republican Party, the Tucker Carlson, that others are repeating over and over again, that the Democrats are deliberately bringing in immigrants to replace white people in this country and that they will be obedient Democratic voters, and that's that plan. So
3: I think it's really important to be able to look at this moment and to orient to it by observing it, right? What is it that we're seeing play out on Fox News in those primetime hours? Number one show, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram. What is the new right, and who's a member of it? Well, Tucker Carlson is a leader, uh, Matt Schlapp of CPAC is a leader, Laura Ingram, J.D. Vance. And, and what they believe is that freedom in America is threatened by American democracy. And so let's pause right there for a second. Yeah, and, and ponder what that what what that is. Let's say that again because I, I want to talk about that on this on this podcast because I want to I want to go deeper on this because it's important to understand what this is. The what they are saying, and there's a Vanity Fair piece by a, by an author named James Pogue who goes inside this new right convention and he talks to J.D. Vance and what they say is that things are so broken, things are so chaotic, so shattered, so corrupt, that democracy has to be suspended in favor of some type of American Caesar who will rule benevolently and wisely and protect the legacy Americans, which is a gentler code word 21st century word for master race. But replacement theory was at the core of Hitlerism. Of and Hitlerism was at the core of Nazi racial ideology, which was turned into the force of law with the Nuremberg Laws, that accompanied a vicious propaganda and a dehumanization that led to mass violence and a targeting of Jews on Kristallnacht. That leads to a conference in a Berlin suburb called Wannsee, which leads to Auschwitz, replacement theory. And replacement theory is the paranoid delusion. That a group of people who are more than and superior to will be enslaved by the perverse notion that they are rendered equal to by the equitable distribution of the vote and have to share power with people that they consider less than. All of this was invented in an essay in 1855 where the word Aryan is used for the first time this is the deadliest essay in history and in 90 years time it killed over 100 million people the ideology behind it and that is what replacement theory is and that is what is peddled on Fox News and that is what is embraced by Elise And that is what is uh, embraced by this extremist movement. It is a deep threat, too, and it is an ongoing pestilence uh, to our culture and
0: our fabric and our national uh, comedy with each other. Part of what amazes me is that J.D. Vance would say this. And the fact that he would say this, was he saying it to someone going undercover or was he saying this to someone he knew was a journalist? He knows it's a journalist, very open
3: about it. The journalist, as he's explaining the intimations, is pretty clear in the inference about what he says when he goes off the record. But this is, in essence, the belief and ideological structure that comes out of the Claremont Institute, which is the ideological engine of this new right. Steve Bannon's movement is training a cadre to dismantle uh, the federal government or the regime, as they call it, within six months of taking power. So when we look at this moment, then you see a Tucker Carlson who is embracing hostile foreign propaganda on American soil, on American air in a way that has not
0: been seen since the height of the boons in 1938 the american bund that was this organization that was pro-nazi for world war ii in america benito mussolini invented fascism
3: and since he invented it benito mussolini believed it's mine it's my idea so i get to define what it means who's a fascist who isn't and what it stands for and he gave a speech about it in 1932 read that speech, and then read what J.D. Vance said. It's the same thing, and fascism is the word. Adolf Hitler gave a speech in 1932, in answer to that speech, that was basically a seal the deal speech. And he was speaking to a very skeptical audience, which were the German industrialists who thought he was a thug and a buffoon. But he was on the edge of taking power at some level, up to and including possibly being chancellor to stop the street chaos, to stop the violence. And in that speech, he attacks the idea of democracy. And the idea that he attacks is the enslavement, right? The equality that democracy will ultimately bring between people that are Aryans, superior, And people that are less than what Hitler says in the speech, it's bad enough that Roosevelt's already controlled by the Jews. But when you look at where all of this goes in America, there will be a day when the mud people, the blacks are equal to the Aryans because you can't contain democracy the way that they're trying to contain it. The idea will spread to its inevitable pollutive enslaved result. That's the philosophy. And that's what these guys are at the core, advancing with some gentler language under a new name, with less overt anti-Semitism. But the extremism that we're witnessing is real. And what we saw in Buffalo was an 18-year-old Nazi who shares the same manifesto as Lee Stefanik and the Republican leadership or MAGA leadership that has completely taken over the leadership in Washington, D.C., and has made themselves agents of chaos, agents of insurrection, agents of a festering white supremacy that they have let out of the box with their cowardice, their complicity, and their
0: recklessness and ambition. And that's where we are. I want to pick up on a couple threads here. First of all, that Hitler was talking to the skeptical German industrialists. I kind of want to ask you, you were in the Republican Party for a long, long time. And I want to know how this took over the Republican Party. And to what extent the Republican industrialists, you know, the Koch brothers other wealthy republicans just kind of said well okay trump uh, i guess he's the nominee and we're just making this deal and we're going with him and how it got kind of from there to here how did the establishment part of the republican party kind of go, go along with this enough to be completely taken over by them
3: Well, I mean, John Kennedy observed this, right? This is the, this is the danger of trying to ride the tiger is that you wind up inside the tiger. So, you know, if you look at German society at the time, right, you had this amalgam of legitimate sociopaths and violent thugs. You had some of the smartest, most ambitious people in the society, but power is a powerful aphrodisiac and so is self interest. And there was a lot of transactional deals around all of this. The dividing line in American life, right, is not is not between parties. It's not not an ideological line. It's a horizontal one. and and it separates the college graduate and the high school graduate. and And below the high school graduate line, you you have a disproportionate amount of opioid deaths because people who work for a living, with their hands and build and make things, they get injured. They're unseen and they're unheard. The power of the country is not on the basis of the four guys who are rich enough to own space stations, though it's not accidental that those people are all Americans. And I think that's a good thing. The power of the country is the American middle class. And the American middle class is not seen and not heard by America's elites. And America's elite party is the Democratic Party, which is distinct from America's fascist party, which has an R next to its name. And so a lot of people will say, well, all of these districts' interests are represented by voting for the person with the D next to their name. And we can sit here and say, well, maybe so. But how many welders are working at The DNC. So we have a dichotomous society, right, that is unseen by the party that believes in democracy and is seen and exploited by the party that doesn't believe in democracy any longer and believes in power. And we have an inability right, to unify and talk to this group of people as brothers and sisters. And that's a great political dilemma that speaks to the absence of real political leadership, real political imagination that we need to see step up
0: in an urgent time of crisis in the country. Let's talk about that because Paul Wellstone, he said, we all do better when we all do better. Yeah, we've seen these deals made to help Uh, real estate investors, right? Even in some of the COVID packages that were disgraceful, which I uh, responded to and just was disgusted by. And because that was us doing that too. But there is, there is part of the democratic party that does believe in the middle class we all do better when we all do better and you're saying that the republican party seems to the now what you call a fascist party um and i wouldn't disagree they are attracting those people in greater numbers than in many cases democrats are yeah and i know that uh, democrats Will say, don't mention Build Back Better. It's just, it's a, (laughs) it was a disaster. Don't mention it. But the press, the media, never would tell people what was in it. It was all uh, horse race and inside baseball, which is what they love to do. But God forbid they should should people would know what's in the package. I don't think people could tell you. I've always thought we should I've thought since way back last fall in October that we should have put those things up on the floor individually so that people could see what they were. And you force a debate on them, then do a reconciliation package if you can't get 60 votes for any of them. People want universal pre-K. They want their kids to be able to be in a safe place and be taken care of and same with with child care. and they want to be able to buy insulin at an affordable price something that was invented what uh, over 100 years ago right the, the, there's no like well we have to the pharmaceutical companies need the research and development money therefore we have to you know that doesn't make any sense so
3: let me ask you a question good which is which is this Do you think that there was a lot of stuff that was big stuff, transformative policy under Build Back Better? Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) I don't know what Build Back Better means. What I'm saying is if you take something important, and you degrade it with jargon and nonsense words in an era where trust is completely collapsed, and there's really no expectation from a competency perspective, right, that government can deliver on that claim, which doesn't make sense in the first place, and it's going to cost a lot of money, and it's all kind of buzz about who's voting for this and that. What we have to do is take a step forward as an American society and expand the notion of public education by starting it earlier, because this is good for children. That is a transformative thing, right? And it's the return return
0: return on investment
3: is being shown over and over again, right? Talk about that directly with conviction, travel around about it, build a coalition Right, you know, talk about common interest. Right, build support
0: and pass it. I, I would argue that Build Back Better was a bad name for the package because no one knew what was in it. I think that Americans don't say yes or no to legislation. because there's there's been a lot of bills passed with really bad names. I think the the fault here was that we the american people never knew what was in the bill and this is why i argued for putting these these bills on the floor individually putting back universal pre-k and saying okay universal pre-k first of all you get to drop your kid at school and you can go to work when your kid's three but more importantly the return on investment of of, of of universal pre-K is is huge, because the the they're much more likely to graduate high school. The girls are less likely to get pregnant in adolescence. The kids are much likely less likely to go to prison. The return on investment is huge. So my feeling is that this wasn't about build back better. It's just the worst name for a bill ever. It was that we didn't put. What was in this bill before the people and all they kept hearing was from the press. It was at three trillion. Is it 1.5 trillion? It was inside baseball. It was, it was horse race. Instead, we should have been saying, no, you have subsidized child care. That also allows people to work. And also people want their kids to be in a se- safe, nurturing place. We needed to put these things on the floor so people could see them. And the stuff that people really liked could have gone into a reconciliation package if they didn't get 60 votes. That's what I'm saying. We could drive
3: across the country on a great tour, right? You know, asking people about Build Back Better, right? They'll look at you like you're asking where the Martian is. No, no, no. Well,
0: we're t- I think we're saying the same thing. No, but we are, absolutely. Yeah, we are. Okay, okay. But okay, so how do you get define I mean you, you did at the beginning what what JD Vance said to this reporter, which is just frightening. Sure yeah, is. If you would actually say this aloud, that is fascism. So is the mission between now and the midterm? how do you communicate to the american people what this crisis is because you're saying that that democrats are afraid to talk about it because they they think that people hear that and then well, why? Yeah, no, you, have to fight, yeah. you have to fight back against these people which starts
3: you know with an orientation to what to what the it is right so let's let's look at abortion right there, there has been an abortion right whether At a law school, academically in discussion in constitutional analysis, people think it's badly decided, wrongly decided, inappropriately decided, conjured into existence or not. The Supreme Court gave a right 48 years ago, right? Where did the abortion right in America come from? It came from the Supreme Court, who said this right exists, and so every one of these men and women who will rule on this has said under oath that they understand the importance of societal stability with their affirmations in favor of stare decisis, which which stands for precedent, and right? they were lying. Therefore, precedent, and they and they all lied. Right. And that's what and that's what makes this such a radical act, because for the first time in history, right, the government is taking a right and they are diminishing in doing so personhood. But what this will lead to is the biggest expansion of government control and power by the state over people bar none, times a fucking hundred thousand, more than prohibition, times a million, more than anything that has ever happened in the history of the United States. That's the door that this opens. It is radical. It must be confronted. We are at the lowest level of abortion rates in this country in a generation. This has nothing to do with babies. It has everything to do with power, control, agency and an authoritarian power grab at a fusion point between authoritarian ideology and
0: theocratic ideology that's what it is we're going to take a quick break for a commercial we'll be right back with steve schmidt You know, I was on the Judiciary Committee. I wasn't there for Kavanaugh. And, you know, there's this questioning by Feinstein where she asks about, about Roe and stare decisis. And he gives this really long thing about being precedent and then Casey being precedent upon precedent and how important that is. And it just goes on and on. No one, and I was just going crazy, not one of our senators just say, but that is meaningless, right? What you just said is meaningless because you could very well still overturn it, right? Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I played one in a sketch, and I knew that settled law could be unsettled by the Supreme Court.
3: In the 2005 nominations that I was part of, you know, not in a million years, right, did I believe, you know, in those years, right, there was a path to a repeal of Roe. You know, I was obviously naive about that. Absolutely, during the Trump years, right, with Susan Collins, you know, I mean, I had a totally different sensibility when we talked about it, which was it was clear to me Everything was more extreme, more radical.
0: That there was an intent there. I mean, the Merrick Garland move is basically is two justices. That's right. That's right. And then you go back to, of course, Bush v. Gore, and you think that if if that wasn't a five-four Republican court, that if Gore was ahead, they would have stopped it. I don't think so. I mean, I think
3: you know on that case. At the end of the day, the system is not rigged to be decided by five hundred thirty eight votes right in one state it's just it's just not right Gee, it you think we prejudice. should have a uh, national right. popular vote yeah i <laughs> I just like you know this is where I have this like pragmatism right that i don't I don't see a way to get there but but we're going to have an era of renewal and reform because so many of our institutions are sclerotic aren't modernized and so to deliver services that that has to be we will have generational change in the leadership of the country you know we have to get back to kind of imagining and building the future as a as a country right and that, and that's why i think this next election is not going to be like the 20 election the 20 election was about trump It was the first 20 million issues in the race. You know, the next election is going to be about us as a society. When you have the extremists and national leaders in a political party all in on replacement theory, hey, I'm going to run on replacement. You're going to start getting people killed. Right. Because that's a that's a war message. That's a death message. And so we have to be able to identify it, talk about it, communicate it. Right to, to appreciate what it is exactly that we're looking at because we're looking at something new, metatastic, and very,
0: very dangerous. Which is means the stakes of this election uh, and the next are enormous. First of all, this one, we have to be able to keep the Senate to get more judges and also the House if we're going to pass any legislation. And uh, we're going to be tied up with investigations from the House, if, if not. And then it's just the next election becomes an existential threat, right? It could be the last election. Yeah. So you're, you're, all your stuff about America is going to get better and, <laughs> and we're going to, uh, you know, solve these problems. I'm not so sure. You know.
3: I, have, I have faith. That a belligerent minority will not succeed in taking control of the country. There's a lot of resiliency in the American system, right? It's it's almost unkillable at a level because of federalism, right? And the diffusion of power in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments at the local level. So there's a lot of resiliency in, in the American system. But we have to be clear, we got legitimate insanity legitimate extremists and, and when the killing starts you know when Elise Stefanik goes out there and she says not me we all gotta say you did this in part and everyone else who did it did it and we have to talk directly about what the it is because the it is an evil and what we want to do And this is the good news. There's never been a time in American history where more people have been bought into the idea that freedom means freedom for everybody. And the idea that all men are created equal really means all men and women and gay people and black and brown people and Asian people and all people from everywhere of every culture creed where every language is spoken, all of us. Are created equally, endowed by a creator with unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're at the all the all-time high number with that. But that idea is under We seat. are absolutely we are. That that number though, right, doesn't reflect the power of the political minority that's in charge. We we have an incredibly Small percentage of the American population, 2%, that functionally elects 90% of the federal office holders in a system where the politicians pick their voters and the politicians only real threat in those districts are from a primary challenge from a politician who is more single issue oriented, more extreme to their functional left or right in a very low turnout primary. But that doesn't mean, right, that the disproportionate power that's yielded by extremists from that is a reflection on what the majority is. We have a disengaged majority. We have a disaffected majority. We got an exhausted majority. But we have a majority. And it's not a slim majority. It is a substantial majority that looks at Madison Cawthorn and looks at all of this and says, let's step back from the abyss.
0: But here's the fear. You started in pretty uh, th- this whole conversation with a pretty dire picture. They have deliberately created an anti-majoritarian system. The Supreme Court is 6-3 of those justices uh, picked by a president who – lost the popular vote that's five of them uh confirmed by a senate that represents 45 percent of the country and a court that allows now gerrymandering and passed uh, and and shelby county uh which allows voter suppression because it got rid of uh, pre-clearance and citizens united which Put all this money into the system, all this dark money from very, very wealthy people who make more money by buying politicians. For sure. So what I'm saying is, is that this is part of their project. This is a big part of their project. For example, in Arizona, they passed some laws in Arizona that were just completely designed to suppress votes. So let me let me ask you this question.
3: Right. Mm -hmm. And it goes it goes back to what happened on January 6th. And, you know, I've tried my best. Well, that was legitimate political discourse. And right. Right. In public forums. Right. You know, to talk about the legitimate political discourse. Right. But what is the big lie? Right. What is it? Right. And if we went out there and you just said like to people like, what, what is the big lie? Right, you say, well, that Trump won the election, right? And okay, you got it, right? That's the lie. But like, who stole it? And the who stole it, right? Which was directly asserted by all these people. But it seems like there's a sensory deprivation tank where, right? No one communicates this, right? But but who they're saying stole it was black people, by the millions in inner cities. Now let's let's put a full stop on something like like that I think is a big miss. That is right the on the record right assertion right when they say the voter fraud the votes and then the votes came in the middle of the night what they're saying right because of the geographies of those places right and in the coded racial dog whistle is the black people stole the election from Trump. That's that's what the vote was on January 6th to not certify those states was in essence to nullify millions and millions and millions of overwhelmingly
0: black votes, not white votes. That was because results came in late, which were mailed ballots, and a lot of them were from cities like Detroit. Right. So that's that's what the big lie is.
3: It is very hard, if not impossible, to stop someone from voting. You can make them wait online. You can make them wait online all day. But if you are determined to vote in 2022 America, you can vote. These laws that are being passed The ones that are the true threat to American democracy are not a return to Jim Crow where people can't vote. The issue is the seizure of an authority in power to take votes after they've been cast and throw them away to change the outcome.
0: That, that is the new uh, big str- problem and strategy and a complete threat to our d- democracy. But they, they also suppress the votes of people who want to vote. In Texas, they passed a new voter ID law that required voters voting by mail to provide the, the numbers from their ID that they used when originally they registered <laughs> to vote. And uh, some of these people voted 30, uh, you know, registered 20 years ago and a huge percent of them, 35 percent were rejected. They're doing it every way they can possibly do. it. Absolutely. They're not missing. They're touching every base. All I'm
3: saying is this. The threat is the throwing away of the votes at a certification place in the timeline and the election of all of these secretaries of state that are faithless to the idea that the person who should take power temporarily and lawfully right at the direction of the american people is in fact the winner of the election
0: you know that's what their new thing is and that's why they have all these candidates for secretaries of state and attorneys general who are saying the election was stolen. Right.
3: And this is this is what makes the coup, this is what makes the insurrection very self-evidently, very clearly a training exercise, right, for the next for the next seizure of power. That at all of the places where you see the action, the activity in the organization, the most acute activity is at the exact places where the last coup was stopped. Yep. I mean, these people keep telling you exactly what it is they're doing,
0: how they're doing it, and it's taking place all out in the open. Yeah, I mean, it's it's mobilizing people to understand what they have to do to register. And then it is basically mobilizing people to vote for the democrat who's running for secretary of state great
3: great story (laughs) great story about this and really the american president who is the closest peer to lincoln is fdr he is a political genius of of equal of equal accomplishment depression world war ii and so fdr has a real sense that the second world war is coming And he understands that, you know, the American people are not there. They're isolationist. One European war was enough. Um, and there's no affinity in the country for the, for the British king, right? For the king of England, right? There's no special relationship. You know, we weren't sympathetic to the British empire, um, in this country. And we were, we were a country filled with Irishmen. Right. And, and so FDR is an aristocrat. Right. This guy is as different, you know, from the ordinary American in lived experience and affectation accent. Right. And, and as you conceivably could be, where he's much closer right in in, in learn and lived experience to, you know, to the king. And so the king comes over and he's trying to build some affinity right between England and the American people and and what does he do right he has them up to Hyde park and he serves them hot dogs right and th- th- this was this was this was extraordinary right the, the american president is 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 handing the king of england right the american common person's food that's a work of a political genius right this moment in time right the security nato finland sweden use the white house for state dinners Talk about freedom, right? Talk about music, right? Arts, culture, right? Use the people's house, right? Use it the way it's been used most effectively in the past to unify, right? We have a lot in common in this country. We share a lot of stuff. Well, we love hot dogs. And if you do that in a way that connects and meets people where they are, you're going to pass some of this stuff that's really important to pass, because we have a real lack of infrastructure investment and in other things in the country compared to other places you
0: go to around the world. We, we got that done. We got the infrastructure bill done. And maybe we sacrifice the other stuff for it. You
3: also, also got when to know when to call it a day and declare the victory, right? You know that the infrastructure legislation is, is, is an enormous achievement, right? And if you move the ball forward on this other thing, Things right, it can't be years of self-flagellation and whipping. Right, you reorganize right, and you you push it forward in the next Congress.
0: Well, I'm against self-flagellation.
3: You know, at the at the end of the day, right, got to got to be able to communicate with people and meet them where they are, right. And that that's the extraordinary deficiency of the moment right now, right. It's not the ideas, it's not the actual leadership. It's a massive communications failure that I stems. Not from like a lack of competency, but for a lack of real understanding about the malice of the forces arrayed against them and how to fight back against it, and and you also have a, just a cultural disconnect at, at a level that's a real thing, um, that that represents a real misunderstanding of like how people view the world, right? I, I think Washington is a very very out of touch place in a lot of in a lot of ways, and um, and I think the evidence of that. Is the standing of the Democratic Party in places where they ought to be doing a lot better?
0: Yeah. I am mean, for example, with labor. You know, the Iron, you know, the Iron Range of Minnesota. Right. And it was a labor. It was a, the 8th District was all Democratic all, all the time. And we've lost it. And these young guys who work these really well-paying jobs in the mines don't understand that they're that well-paying because of unions. And we've kind of lost that generation, which is just a terrible shame.
3: I was talking to someone about this, right? He's a Democratic member of Congress. And it was like, you know, the, the labor management models, right? You know, and like, let's say the auto industry of the 1970s and the 1980s, like didn't do anyone any good. It produced shitty cars. It it produced bad products, right? It crippled the American auto industry. That's not the case today. Now you got functional partnership. When you look at the labor unions, right, you look at a private sector labor union, you know, if the membership is divided between workers who are 10 years from retirement and workers who are 50 years from retirement, older workers got a pension, younger workers never will. And the leadership, right, of the union is skewed to delivering a constituency, right, of services to the older workers at the expense of the younger ones, that speaks to a deficiency of the union movement's leadership if they can't connect to that younger group, right? That's the same in a political party, in a labor union, and anything. All of these institutions, right, that are vital to a reimagining of the American middle class, the growth of the American middle class, have to be connected in a better way to the communities, to the places in the country where these workers are and be aligned with their expectations as opposed to demanding that the workers get in line because that's not a functional model. But, you know, in a lot of Democratic Party organizations, right, there does seem like just as an observer and like a a fairly recent Democrat that, you know, that's kind of the you know, get in line here. And, you know, and I just, we don't live in that era and people aren't going to get in line. And I think it's important to appreciate that the national character, right? More than anything else of the country is basically that we all agree on is people in this country don't like being told what to do.
0: And so we have this uh, resentment of the elites. Trump has tapped into into that. That's his superpower. Uh, but, there are a lot of Americans who look at the Republicans, and they're going. They're the party of the rich. They're against raising taxes on the wealthy. They cut taxes for them. We, we that was a very unpopular tax cut. It's not fair, and that's an overwhelming number of Americans. And also, I think they look around at these MAGA folks uh, and kind of a lot of Americans kind of think they're crazy. So do you think that we can prevail in this election or what are your predictions for November? I think Democrats are going to hold the Senate
3: because Republicans yep. have some really oh nutcase insane <laughs> candidates, right? Insane candidates, nutcase candidates. Democrats have some great candidates. Tim Ryan in you know, Ohio is one. And I think the other thing is, and, you know, the the House right now is on a trajectory where where Democrats are going to lose the House pretty, pretty convincingly unless, right, and there's a lot of time you can make the race about something that it's not about
0: right now. Speaking of which, of course, we've had uh, the Alito decision on, on abortion, and we have the January 6th hearings coming up which are going to be televised in prime time yeah it's going to be huge will that combination make a difference and i think it will yes yeah. it will you know they had the confederate flags they had a guy with the camp auschwitz <laughs> sweatshirt <Switcher>. right <laughs> you know and 140 cops being beaten and injured with severe injuries and the committed suicide some of them and bear spray and broken vertebrae and traumatic brain injury i i boy i hope this makes a difference i said from the very beginning of this right what a disaster it would be
3: when trump refused to concede the election that this goes to a very dangerous, deadly place, right? So so what happens on January sixth? it is one of two things. This was not a peaceful crowd. This was not legitimate political discourse. This was mob political violence that attacked the capital of the United States, brought Confederate flag through, bludgeoned police officers, people defecated in the hallways, urinated in the hallways, attack on the peaceful transition of power, right? It's either one of two things. It was either a deeply mentally deranged whack job, defeated president inciting a mob that got completely out of control and marched and did what it did with a whole moron pack right around Trump, even bigger moron pack around Fox news Right, like a bunch of drunken teenagers lighting a fire, gasoline around, like you just burned out of control, got out of hand, and there you go. It's either that, or it is the biggest conspiracy and crime in American history. It is either A or it is B. Both are terrible. If it is B... And I think it is likely to be, be, overwhelmingly so, given what we know now and given the intimations of what they have that Jamie Raskin has said, is, is what I believe is they're going to unveil the singularly greatest uh, conspiracy against American democracy in American history, and I think it's going to be spellbinding. But at the end of the day, when this is laid out, presented, and it's presented in a compelling way, and this committee has presented everything that it's found in a compelling way so far. I think it's going to make a big, big, big difference.:
0: I hope there, there are like of- eight Alexander Butterfield moments right. yeah <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, because when you started this, I just thought we were you know going to be the Third Reich in about um you know, five years <laughs> or four. You gotta understand <laughs> what it is. Okay. You gotta understand
3: what it is. We've been in tough times before. Um, we've been in worse times before. Not many of them are as bad as where we are politically, but we've made it through before. We will again, but it requires confrontation and a real steady ability to look at something and understand what it is and to push away. The pretend instinct and the fantasy instinct and everything that wants to blind you to something that you have an absolute right reaction to disbelief and looking at it and saying, holy shit, you know, I I can't, I can't believe this is happening, but it is happening. Right. And and that's, and that's the point. And and that's what we got to fight back against in the country.
0: Well, thank you, Steve, and I have a feeling you're going to keep talking. I will, Al. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week.
2: The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.